0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Lord Jesus, we give you thanks this evening for drawing us together to remember, O Lord, and to be reminded of who we are and who you are. And I pray, O Father, that even in this moment here, that you would open our hearts and our minds to perceive and understand what you would teach us from your word. Holy Spirit, be our comforter and our teacher in this moment. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you um, have your bulletin, we're going to look through Ephesians, the Ephesians reading tonight. Um, I'm glad to be with you all. I think this is the first time I've been to the evening service in a while. So, hello. It's good to see you. Um, and I guess it's apropos to say Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of you. I, I like new beginnings. I think it's the um, the academic in me. I teach for a living. Uh, so I like the rhythms of the academic year and, and the and the possibilities of, of new beginnings. I'll have to admit to you, I've, I've broken an enormous amount of um, New Year's resolutions and I planned uh, to break some more this year, uh, but I'll, I'll give it a go. I'm, so I'm not cynical about the whole rhythm and cycles of our lives, um, but uh, here we are, at a new beginning. Christmas is the first of the new year in the church calendar, and January 2nd, the beginning of the year of our own calendar year. And I, I think there are a few texts in the Bible that can set us on course at the beginning of a new year, like Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Uh, it comes right at the beginning of Paul's magisterial letter to the Ephesians. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And it sets the tone, this text here sets the tone for the whole of Paul's letter. And really, I think, can set the tone for the entirety of our lives. I mean, for those of us who feel like we're off course. I mean, Ephesians 1 can offer a gracious and a life-giving Course corrective. And if you notice here, even in your worship bulletin, the way in which Paul begins um, this long introduction, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with praise. The whole of Paul's letter, and this is a letter, by the way, that will get Um, deep in the the theological trenches about what God has done for us in Christ in the building up of his church. Ephesians is going to wade you through some very thick waters. But at the beginning of Paul's um, uh, uh, theological uh, treatise and letter to these Christians in Ephesus, he begins by reminding them of the centrality of praise. Um, Praise in the Bible is lungs to the breath of our existence. In fact, one could say if you look at the whole of the Bible with the Psalms, for example, included, that that for the Psalms, um, to live is to praise and to praise is to live. They're, they're flip sides of the, of the same coin. I'm, I finished a, a whole class this past semester with a group of students where, where I teach. I'm looking at the Psalms and their history of reception in the church and one of the fascinating features of the Psalms when you move out of them in their particularity and, and t- kind of take an aerial Goodyear blimps view of the whole of the Psalms, you see that the Psalter is shaped in a sh- certain way and, and it's moving so that through all the twists and the turns of our lives, we're being moved, and, and I'll, I'll use this term, I think, um, uh, selectively, we're, we're, we're being moved tyrannically toward Praise. So that when you get to around Psalm 144 or Psalm 145, it's as if the clutch of praise gets released and everything that's coming off the psalmist's lips or pen is about praise. Let everything that has breath. And if you read those psalms, you'll see that um, the rocks are called on to praise and the trees are called on to praise and all men and all women and even the angels of the Lord are called on to praise. So somewhere residing near the very heart of our existence of what it means to be human for those who are standing and living life in the presence of God, one of its very basic features is to praise. Praise and and the adoration of God in worship in our daily lives draws us away from the tyranny of our own selves. Our tendency, if left on autopilot, my tendency, if left on autopilot, is to turn inward and gaze in an inward way. And what praise does by its very nature is forces us and draws us outside of ourselves into much fairer and greener pastures. The pasture of God's presence revealed to us in Jesus and made effective by the power of the Holy Spirit. To live is to praise and to praise is to live. One of the interesting features of the Bible... Especially the Old Testament um, is this understanding that praise and thanksgiving, the worship of the living God, is the opposite of idolatry. In other words, idolatry and praise cannot operate and coincide in the same space. They're, they're antithetical one to the other. They, they're, they're oil and water. So to praise is to be in the place that's opposite of idolatry, and to be in idolatry is to be in the place that's opposite of praise. So the praise and idolatry are their um, polar opposites one to another. I think, by the way, this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, in so many of his letters, will end his letters by saying, oh, and by the way, don't stop rejoicing. Don't, don't stop thanksgiving. Don't, don't stop giving God praise. What's the response of the people of God to the overwhelming goodness and beauty of God's grace to us revealed in Jesus? The only response that's proper from you and from me is the praise of gratitude and thanksgiving. We're grateful, we're thankful, and we're drawn into that place. To be in praise is to be opposite of the land of idolatry. And we are all, myself included, prone to go clawing after all these things or people or events in this world that might bring us the satisfaction that we so desperately want. And none of those things satisfy. They're all hungers um, that draw us into a world other than our own. I was flipping, I mentioned this this morning, I've been flipping through a little bit of um, some of the... uh, Cantos of Dante's Paradiso uh, for some stuff that I've been working on. And here's canto one of Dante's Paradiso as he's moving toward heaven and toward the heavenly throne. Is, he praises this providence That causes humanity to hunger. It's very, very Pauline here. That causes humanity to hunger so that it recognizes that its hunger can only be satisfied, can only be sated before the very presence of the living God. We are all slaked with a deep and abiding thirst. And the Apostle Paul is stopping right here, out of the gate, verse 3 of Ephesians 1, and saying, at the very basis of what it means for you and for me to be humans, to be Christians, is to operate and to abide in the sphere and the space of praise. To praise is to live, and to live is to praise. Um, I, I, this is this is good New Year's kind of reflection as we enter into, into a new year. I was uh, on the way over tonight talking with a friend of mine, um, a graduate of, of Beeson where I teach, and he's got a family. They live out in Pelham, and he sent me a text. He says, "We've got COVID again." Uh, I guess they had COVID in January of last year, and now they have it again. And he said, "And you won't believe this, Mark, but we also had our gas line struck by lightning, almost blew up our whole house." I'm like, "Good goodbye, 2020 21 hello 2022 right i mean we live in a world that's fraught with perils and distractions and and difficulties and here the apostle paul says at the very core of what it means for you to correct your own existence toward that which is true and hopeful and lovely and beautiful is to operate and to exist in the sphere of praise and thanksgiving to love him and to glorify him blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, I'll say this, I mean, I, I, not to get overly therapeutic here, but I know that we all are struggling, especially in this moment, um, with our feelings, you know, with, with how, how we feel about the world and how we feel about what it means to be right now and expectations that we had about where things might be now in light of complicated 2022, I mean, 21 and oh. Let that not be prophesying, Lord. Uh, 2021 and then 2020, I mean, here, here we are now like, oh my goodness, it's like we're in some bad version of the movie Groundhog's Day. What's going on? And here I think this sort of sense of praise and the call to praise is a challenge for us to, and this is going to be a little bit cheesy, but I'll say it anyway, to praise ourselves by God's grace into a new set of feelings. That the praise of God can reorient us to those things which are ultimate and true. And what is it that's causing Paul here at the beginning of the book of Ephesians to erupt into praise and thanksgiving? He's doing so because of God. Did you notice in the reading how robustly and richly Trinitarian this text is? Bless God the Father who has called us in his Son Jesus Christ. And then when you get down to the bottom of this text, it's the Holy Spirit that comes and makes these things effectual in our very lives. I mean, this is a robustly Trinitarian text that's that's calling us into praise and thanksgiving because of God and the way in which God has revealed himself to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So who is God in this text? Who's God the Father? Well, this is how Paul describes him, and it's so rich. The one who loved us from before the foundations of the world. He chose us as his own, Paul says, before we could ever choose him. Before the material world was formed, he had you in mind as his own. The affections of eternity were set on you. I mean, when you hear Paul talk about these things, it's very easy for me as well to flit right past it into sort of easier territory to understand. Let's talk about sin and, and redemption, and I mean, we, we can kind of lean into that, but God loving us and choosing us in Christ from before the very foundations of the world, before the material world even came into existence, God had you and me in mind? I mean, this presses into territory that goes beyond the, cap- the capabilities of our speech, Our language falters when we we begin to try to describe what Paul is after here. But all we can say, or at least at a very bare minimum, is we can say that God and his very eternal being, in need of nothing external to him to make himself more full or more rich or more satisfied. God, in the mysteries of his eternal self satisfied being and will, chose you and me and the creation of this world for the sake of its redemptive end. It's remarkable to think that God had you on his mind before he even said, Let there be light, and there was light. It's remarkable. That's why Paul can't help but get giddy here because Paul knows that he's standing before the very mysteries of the universe and the mysteries of the universe that go beyond our speech have to do with you and me. That's what's remarkable. You and I are fitted in to the remarkable and overwhelming mysteries of the eternal mind of God in his own self-counsel and self-determining will. It's remarkable. That's the power of who God is. And what's, our, what's Paul's response to that? Praise and thanksgiving. Bless God. Who are we? We're his adopted children or those who are called to be his own. And notice the language that he says here. Called to be holy and blameless. Now that's That's interesting as well, right? In other words, God called us in Christ before the foundations of the world for a purpose, to be holy, to be blameless, if I can put it in these terms, to be set apart totally and completely to him and to him alone. So that the very core of our being is a being that's wrapped up in the beauty and the otherness and the saving grace of God revealed in Jesus, called and set apart to him and to him alone. And I know, if you're like me, you hear that and you say, "Goodness gracious, that is—you um, know—that sounds great on paper." But I know that, you know, Monday morning is around the corner, and Wednesday morning, and Thursday, and all the complexities and the trappings of what it means to be human and to live life, and—and—and and, and I think we, we can't escape that, we can't transcend that. But the beauty of the Bible and the fact that we have the Bible as God's revelation to us, day in and day out, is that we get to be reminded on days like to, or evenings like tonight. That what Ephesians 1 is saying is true. And even when we're not cognizant of it, like the nights when the moon is not apparent, the moon's still there even when we don't see it. The sun's still there when we're not observing it. The reality of God's mysteries revealed in Christ for you and for me are there even when we're not perceptive of them. That's who he is. And he set his affections on you. And the proper response is praise and thanksgiving. Well, Paul goes on. He's got more to say. Who is God? God's the one that's called you in Christ from before the foundations of the world. Who's Jesus? He's our savior. Look at the language here. He's our redeemer. He's our advocate. Think of this. Jesus in his humanity as the raised son of God occupies the space that's unique to God alone and there before the father by the spirit he's praying for you even now Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience in the school of human suffering well why would Jesus do that Hebrews tells us so that he could intercede for you in a fitting way with knowledge Jesus is praying for you because he knows what it's like to be a human because he is one He's interceding for you. He's your advocate. He's the one that's offered you, the Apostle Paul tells us, the forgiveness of your sins and your trespasses. The burden of sin that's laid on you has been lifted off of you and placed onto the back of Jesus who absorbed it for you so that you could be free. Free for what? Praising God and loving your neighbor. Who is Jesus? He's our advocate. I mean, when you read through Ephesians 1, 3 3 through 10, you're, you're getting basic and fundamental Christian truths that we need reminding of again and again. I mean, in the best sense of the term, this is kind of the basis of our evangelical faith. We've been redeemed. We, we have a Savior. Hallelujah. And yet Paul goes even bigger than this. He expands the scope beyond just the individuality or the collectivity of us or his church to expand beyond this into the mystery of God's will, revealed in Christ. And if you'll notice the last uh, part of verse 10, to bring all things together in heaven and on earth, together in him. If I can steal a line from one of the late church fathers, we, we see that Christ is cosmic in his scope. He sits over the whole of the universe as its Lord, and he reigns and he rules. He's bringing all things back together, summing them all together in him so that uh, Jesus himself is the one that brings heaven and earth to kiss one another. And in time, those will be fused in such a way as not to be able to be distinguished anymore. That's, That's our hope. That's what he's doing. He's making everything new. So this is huge, what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. It, it brings us to the precipice of eternity and lets us get a little peer, a, a little gaze from the plains of Moab into the promised land to see what it is that God is doing with, these, with this carpenter man who grew up and died and then rose again and is drawing all of humanity to himself and all of creation for the sake of making everything new. That's what we need reminding of at the beginning of a new year. So can, can I close by reflecting on a few things with you here we're in a hard moment Uh, we've been saying it for two years now and we'll probably be saying it for a little bit longer I think we recognize that um, we're, we're gonna have to buckle up for a while and and so here we have to think about some very fundamental things about how one lives in this in this world and where and where our citizenship ultimately resides what where our hopes are actually placed one of the I, I, I mentioned this this morning. I I. I. I tend to prefer dead theologians. I think you need to die before you're probably all that worth listening to. Um, but one, one dead theologian that I like is a fellow named John Calvin. He's got, got, had a little bit of things going on under the hood, even though I think he was probably a difficult person in, in, in real life. Um, but, but Calvin um, has this fascinating reflection toward the end of one of his large sort of treatises on theology, where he talks about the nature of the Christian life and what it means to be disciplined by God. This is, I would call this, by the way... Steak and potatoes, Christianity. This is is not this. This is like okay, get out your new steak knives and give this one a go because you might have to chew on this a while, and it's hard. And what Calvin says is there are situations in our lives, not always self-identifiable, but there are situations in our lives where God brings difficulties into our lives to remind us of where our ultimate hopes and allegiances lie. And Calvin gets specific. I mean, this is what's so remarkable about it. It's like he, he starts pressing on exposed nerves. Calvin says, uh, for example, God might give you a difficult marriage to let you know that this world is not your final resting place and that all your hopes and dreams are resting there and not here. I'm like, ooh, that one kind of hurts. Then, then he goes and he presses even further. God might give you a difficult child you're not not the child that you thought you were gonna have, who, who just challenges you from beginning to end. And, and the difficulty of rearing that child, God's reminding you and, and whispering to you from beyond that this world is not your final resting place, that your hopes and your dreams are somewhere else. And Calvin could have rolled out a whole litany, a whole list of various things in this world that show us that our hopes reside somewhere else. We're panting for something more, a heavenly existence, the new heavens and, and the new earth. And I think in our moment right now, and I pray this for you and for me, especially at the beginning of the year, as we're thinking about the newness of a new beginning, which seems to have the old clothes still on of the previous years. As we're wrestling through that, I think we have the Apostle Paul painting for us with this incredibly broad brushed painting on a big canvas, the beauty and the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus now, and the hope that that lays for us in in, in time to come. I'm starting a class tomorrow, if, if the roads are passable, I don't know. I'm starting a class tomorrow with some students I'm on the book of Isaiah. Um, I'm, I'm excited about this. I think, you know, Isaiah is one of those books that made the cut for a reason, I think. Um, and Isaiah chapter 2 um, presents this incredible portrait of the new heavens and the new earth. It says, in the latter days, God is going to raise Mount Zion to be the greatest of all mountains. And everyone's going to stream to Mount Zion to be taught from the Lord. And Israel's God is going to teach them. And they're not going to remember war anymore. And they're going to think, think Martin Luther King Jr. here. They're going to turn their spears into pruning hooks and their, their swords into, and, into agricultural uh, means. And we get this sort of beautiful imagery that's used in this picture of the new heavens. And what happens is Isaiah the prophet makes a pivot God's gonna do that, verses one through four. And then what does he say in verse five? Come now, Judah. Come now, Israel. Let us walk in the light of God's truth. Paul, Isaiah and the Apostle Paul paint this beautiful picture of the future to encourage and challenge us in the current moment. To walk in the light of the truth, even when it appears that darkness is all around us. Because what Paul is telling you in Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 and following is what's really real. So come, let us walk in the light of God's truth. And we ask these things, O Lord, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.